Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm an MBA candidate at the Wharton School and an MA candidate at the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Ryan Falvey, managing partner of the Financial Venture Studio. He has spent the last 15 years identifying, supporting, and leading market-changing innovations in technology. Since 2015, he's invested in 40 early-stage fintech firms, which have grown to represent approximately $3 billion in aggregate equity value. Prior to founding the Venture Studio, Ryan led the development of the Financial Solutions Lab, a partnership between J.P. Morgan Chase and the Financial Health Network. Ryan has a graduate degree from Yale and an undergraduate degree from UCLA. And now, without further ado, let's listen to my conversation with Ryan Falvey. Welcome, Ryan, and thank you for joining us at the Words and Fintech podcast. How about we start uh, with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, I uh, think I, I probably you know, got started in this, maybe back kind of when this podcast got started, actually. It's been a few years now, but um, I used to, uh, had a background in, uh, financial inclusion and in fintech. Most of my career actually started after graduate school. I worked abroad for about six years, which was like kind of 2008 to 2014, helping a lot of the kind of like the early kind of mobile banking and mobile banking payments platforms that were getting started, kind of doing a lot of business planning around that and kind of helping them raise money. And so there's several now that are, are quite successful that he was, was involved with pretty early. Then in 2014, came over to the US. And uh, I worked for Silicon Valley Bank briefly on a payment strategy team. And, and I think I you know, saw kind of firsthand how much of an opportunity there was in the U.S. to imp- improve financial services. And really, at that point, in fintech was pretty early here, too. I mean, as I say, like, globally, it was almost a little bit further ahead than, than what was happening in the U.S. domestic market. And got an opportunity very shortly after to uh, launch something called the Financial Solutions Lab, which was a program that was backed by J.P. Morgan Chase in partnership with a nonprofit known as the Financial Health Network. And what we're trying to do is really try to help a lot of early consumer-facing fintech businesses um, and nonprofits who would do nonprofit grant making as well get started and um, and really understand how the financial services ecosystem in the United States worked. And through that, started investing. Invested in about 24 companies in that process. Several of them have gone on to be really successful now. So, you know, Digit, Dave, uh, Nova, Propel, which has a food stamps product called the Fresh EBT, which is now has millions of users on it. A company called Prison Money, important to the story now, uh, which is a bill payment product, which was sold to Pay Near Me um, back in 2015, 2016. And the founder of that company, Tyler Griffin, and I started working there. After that sale, he joined us as an entrepreneur residence. And we really saw an opportunity to take a lot of what we were doing in that nonprofit construct and take it out to a for-profit model. And so that was a lot of the impetus of starting the Financial Venture Studio. And you know, the idea here, I think there's kind of three trends that we've seen in the market. And you know, unfortunately, I think that the latest this crisis around you know, COVID, I think, is kind of highlighting those to a degree. But one of those is that you know the nature of financial services and banking is you know, kind of fundamentally changing. If you think about it for the last, say... 300 years or so, like basically you could just drag some granite to the most expensive plot of real estate in the town. And as long as you follow the rules, you essentially got a license to, to run an oligopoly on banking or insurance in that you know physical territory. And you know the internet, I think, really broke that down. And so now with a very little limited amount of capital, you can kind of launch a product that can have you know, national scale pretty quickly 
But then the ability to continue growing this business is still somewhat constrained by how well you can you know, follow those rules. You still have to follow the rules, and it still requires a lot of capital with these businesses to big to significant scale. You still need to work with the rest of the financial services ecosystem. Financial services is a pretty collaborative industry at the end of the day. And you need to figure out how you can continue growing and scaling in what is a really challenging kind of media and digital distribution environment. And so what we try to do is we invest in companies really early and then work with them very closely for you know six, 12 months. We're intensively for you know, six, 12 months after the investment to try to kind of connect them to those, we kind of think of the kind of five key stakeholder groups in FinTech. So the other financial institutions and potential partners, regulators and policymakers are another. Third would be obviously investors. You know, I think that you know, these businesses do require a decent amount of capital. So knowing those investors out there is, is really important. And then you have digital influencers in the media. So you can kind of tell your story and kind of stay top of mind for consumers. And last would be other founders. Yeah, as, as anyone who's ever done anything knows, having other collaborators in the kind of a similar industry of yours and can bounce ideas off and talk to it is really important. So I'm trying to kind of create that ecosystem in the community is what we're trying to do in the, in the financial lender studio. That makes a lot of sense. And, and so you mentioned that you try to back the companies early, but uh, as we both know, a challenge for startups in the financial industry is that the time to launch tends to be much longer, particularly because you have to navigate a highly regulated environment. Uh, how do you ensure that you're backing the right horse? before they've even launched a product? Uh, there's a decent amount of guessing. There's educated, educated guesses associated with that, I guess. Uh, no, I mean, the way we kind of approach this, obviously, we're only focused on fintech. And, you know, I think for people like you or me and your listeners, you know, that's a big industry. Um, but it's a pretty small part of tech broadly, right? It's, 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 there's only, there's only so many new FinTech companies. And so I think, you know, the first thing was we've got to really kind of see on top of the market and know which companies are coming and talk to them pretty early. On average, I'd say new companies have generally been around for maybe a year before we're investing in them. They might've raised a little bit of money from family and friends or done a very small kind of angel round. Usually we have some evidence of product, so that might be, you know, a handful of users. I mean, I think we feel comfortable with that. Um, it could be something where they're going to launch and, you know, you can look at a demo and you get a sense of what it looks like. But, you know, most of the time they have some, some kind of user base. And where what they're coming to us for is a lot of the same issues. Like they realize they might have something. It's like I could really use help figuring out who could help me hold fun, customer funds or I want to think about a broader kind of partnership and sales strategy. Yeah, I need to kind of think about how I improve my customer acquisition costs by talking to more kind of influencers and thinking about more viral marketing outlets. And so there's usually enough that the, that the founder has a sense of the problem set and we feel like we can help them do that. And so, you know, generally it's early, I think, in this scale of venture capital, but I think for the founders, you know, I'd say there's, there's on average, there's teams of, you know, four or five people. We think about where we'd fit in the eco, like in the accelerator ecosystem. For example, we've had a number of companies that have graduated from you know YC or Techstars or some of the other accelerators. We haven't had, I don't think any that have left our program and, and gone into one of those, for example. So it's usually kind of post accelerator. That makes sense. And so tell us a little bit more about the Financial Venture Studio. How big is the team? How did you assemble it? And also, how do you maintain all those relationships that you mentioned with regulators, investors, media, and founders? Yeah, the team came together around the previous incarnation of the Financial Solutions Lab. So there's myself. So I was I was hired to kind of start that that program. 
and kind of figure out what we did there. And I had, uh, through that, had started working with Shannon Austin. So she's kind of, kind of a media and communications guru and had a background in consumer products. And when we were trying to think of how we could kind of build our profile, you know, she has this amazing skill of being able to kind of cut through kind of the jargon and just kind of the technical speak that everyone tends to fall into when they're talking about something they're excited about and kind of make it really approachable. And so worked with her there and would help the founders kind of tell their stories and kind of make it something that resonates with the average person. Tyler, I mentioned, was the founder of building a company called Prison Money, and he had successfully exited that firm and uh, worked with us in entrepreneur residence for a couple of years. And so yeah, I think he was he was kind of looking for his next thing. And then there's a we have a venture partner named Tom Brown, who's heads of the fintech and payments practice of Paul Hastings, probably one of the country's kind of leading fintech attorneys, if not the leading fintech attorney. And so we had worked really closely with him prior as well. And you know, he was all, he's always, he was kind of looking for an opportunity to kind of continue to kind of stay really close to the early stage of the market. He's a full-time lawyer, but I think he's got a real deep interest in helping the founders. And he's a great eye for some spotting some of his companies at the early stage. Um, and then there, we have associate on the team, Bio Katsulas, who joined us last year, and who has uh, a great sense of kind of raising capital in the LP market. And so the, those are kind of the five of us. And I think, you know, each of those people kind of map to kind of part of what we're trying to do. So I think I have a decent sense of strategy and can help companies on the fundraising front. I've never really been a founder. And so there's a decent amount of credibility you have. Oh, I've actually had to do this. And so like, you know, Tyler can bring that and has a really good sense of operational issues and tech and building technical teams and those types of things. Obviously, Shannon can help out a lot in marketing, communications, talking to those influencers. Tom has an incredible depth of knowledge on the regulatory and partnership side. And so then when we're, when we're trying to think about you know, how we manage all those relationships, I think many of them kind of fall in a bucket where we're already you know, pretty plugged in. But you know, you're always always trying to build them. I think we're getting to the point now that it's almost it's kind of too many to have in your head. And so we're trying to figure out how you can institutionalize some of that. But yeah, I mean, it's just kind of those things you just kind of, you kind of build these networks and you're know, trying to always actively add to it and think about who else would be helpful. And how do you incorporate new companies in your portfolio? Do you do it on a, on a class basis, kind of like the YC model, or is it more ad hoc? And how many are you getting inbound and how many are you taking? That's a good question. So it's, it's a little bit of a hybrid model. You know, we desperately try to avoid using the word accelerator. No one, <laughs> companies don't really allow to be an accelerator. Investors don't want to fund accelerators. So we need a new kind of a, we need a new noun, but that's honestly probably the best verb, you know, what we're trying to do. I think in FinTech, it's a little bit different. It doesn't take much capital to get live with most ideas. I mean, there's some exceptions, but, you know, especially a lot of stuff in consumer or small business, and there are a lot of design innovations. What tends to cost money in financial services is the scaling part. You become really pricey. You know, when you get to have, to have to build a compliance and regulatory function, I mean, those are highly paid roles and have, there's a lot of downside risks associated with not doing that well. But a lot of that at the earliest stages is not super critical. Oh, I'm sorry. It's super critical, but it's not the most pressing issue. You know, you're really trying to figure out kind of product market fit. And that, I think, is a little bit different than how accelerators are generally organized. So, you know, think about the Y Combinator is an exceptional place to kind of learn how to be a founder and get started and get a product live and get in front of a bunch of investors. But those are generalist investors for the most part. And they're looking at you kind of generalizable trends across that, their investment decisions there. I think what we can do is say, okay, hey, like totally buy all that, but like we could be really helpful here in getting this to like the next stage in your growth. 
And so when we look at kind of where we're trying to come into companies, they just generally have, like I said, they have enough traction that they know what problems they're facing. They're more complicated than like, I just need to raise a million dollars. Like if that's all the issue the founder has, like that's probably not enough for us to be really that helpful because we could just then give them the million dollars. And at that point, like what else are we doing? Right. And so we want to have a little bit more of like something to kind of sink our, sink our teeth into to be helpful. And so they have some traction, kind of stage-wise, what we're looking for. And then we do we get a lot of direct roof inbound. So we have a pretty significant network of founders at this point we've invested in, probably about 40 founders who have either invested in through this or through the lab. We have a lot of other investors we work really closely with. So a number of the big, especially consumer multi-stage investors, you know, kind of see us as, as a pretty valuable partner in helping them understand what's happening in fintech. And I think we punch a little bit above our weight as far as how much support we can provide our founders vis-a-vis, you know, maybe other more traditional kind of just seed funds. And so we get a lot of referrals for that. So I'd say the companies, and, and so we're investing throughout the year. I think that's an important thing. Right? So we'll, we'll kind of invest all year long. Whenever we see good deals, we're investing them. And then we'll try to batch up our investments into kind of cohorts of firms to run through the studio program. And we'll run that about every nine months. So it's a six-month program, six months of kind of intensive thing, and it takes another two or three months on the end to make sure that they actually are doing well, that they need to raise money to make sure those deals get done. We find the next kind of class of companies we're working with. We'll also do an application process in advance of that, of the start of like a cohort of firms. We'll get usually a couple hundred companies that will apply through that or we'll get directly referred to us. I'd say we're taking one or two, honestly, out of that. It's, it's pretty, I mean, I think our investment decisions are still generally setting a pretty high bar here, but it's a great way to kind of get a sense of the market. And, you know, frankly, like you'll have a company, we will be tracking them, you know, for a year or two sometimes before we're investing. So I'd say as far as a portfolio, probably 75% of them are coming through direct referrals or they're reaching out to us when they're having a, a round. And then either 25% are going to come through that application process. When we're going to invest in the companies, our average checks is about $100,000 initially. And then we'll build on that position pretty dramatically over the course of kind of the, the first six months of the program. So we'll go up to a million dollars of total exposure in a firm who still have a lot of conviction in them. Do you require for the companies to move to your headquarters? Obviously now it's all virtual, but uh, <laughs> yeah, during normal times. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, no, the answer is absolutely not. We don't have, at this point, we don't have much of headquarters. It's, you know, this, I think at this point it's a mailing and forwarding address for mail. Uh, but no, we never had. I mean, going back to you kind of first principles here, I mean, these companies have been around for a bit. They work somewhere with each other for a few months. There's probably three or four of them at a minimum by the time. They're showing up, telling them to move to our to San Francisco, where if they're not there already, like they could save themselves a lot of expense. But they are there, they already have an office. And that's not, you know, I think that's not really critical to us because we're trying to get a company that might have a little bit of traction and get them to kind of national scale. There's really them being with us, it's hard to understand the logic of why those are really connected. Instead of what we're doing is we're having kind of periodic meetings about every like six weeks or so. And those meetings actually move around the country, depending on kind of what audience we want to put them in front of. So we'll go do one in New York, where it's around focus on partnerships. We'll get all the big banks and the insurance companies and the New York fintech investors to kind of show up there. And it's essentially just a series of office hours. We'll go do one in New York, and we'll have you know, all the big the regulators and the policymakers that will come and we'll do kind of a series of round robin meetings. For our investor event in San Francisco, we, we try to present more of almost like a seminar on what's happening at fintech, more kind of content-driven than kind of demo-driven, so that we can help the founders kind of tell the stories of how they think the market's unfolding and, and start helping build kind of longer-term relationships 
or doing things around like influencers and media, we'll actually like bring together a bunch of media for for a dinner together and kind of have get an opportunity to meet all the founders, less pitchy type of environment. So it really is kind of more of a long-term focused program. It's not something where at the end, six months in, you're like, oh, I'm going to raise $4 million. It's really like, oh, if after six months, I'll have all these relationships that I should be able to leverage for the next several years. And then importantly, we're not really going away either. We're just, you know, kind of, we'll kind of start, hopefully at that point, we're bringing in other, other investors or there's other, other partners. And so, yeah, I think we just kind of start naturally kind of taking a little bit of a step back. I like how you mentioned storytelling being one of your key contributing factors, because we've had a lot of great founders on the podcast and they tend to be great storytellers. So that seems to be like a key trait for someone to sell a company and sell a vision. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how about, you know, you have obviously a great list of companies, perhaps you could highlight a couple of them for us to find out more how you work with them, where they are now and where they're going. Yeah, no, happy to. I'd say, you know, one of our first kind of investments we made through the studio is a company called Roger.ai. And this was a, it's a bill, a bill payment platform, kind of accounts payable solution. So it looks a little bit like bill.com, which is, you know, a much you know, now a public company in the sense that like you can use it to pay bills. But what really differentiated them to us is a really easy approval flow process. So if you think about when you're paying bills and let's even have a company, of, let's say 10 people. Yeah, you, the owner, the principal owner of the business or the CEO might actually still be approving almost all the bills. But, you know, you can have a restaurant and so you get a delivery and maybe there's a, a waiter or a chef or someone who is actually taking it and signing an invoice. And then that invoice is going to get, you know, handed off to somebody else and then they'll get stapled to the bill and someone will have to write a check. And so even like a relatively small business, there's a lot of paper and there's a lot of approval process involved in it. There's also a lot of opportunities for fraud. And so what Roger does is kind of makes it really easy to set up those approval flows. And so you can just say, you know, take a picture and scan it and I can go you know, get forwarded to me and I can still be at home and I can see it and prove it. And then it'll automatically generate a, a, an outbound bill. And then I'll make a little bit of a fee for every bill they pay. And there's a, there's a monthly subscription fee to it. The company is actually second time founding team that sold their first company to, to Cisco for did really well out of that. Very you know, technology driven founders. Um, they're also Danish, and they had launched the company originally in Denmark. And so they had a decent user base of European users when we got there, when we invested. They've been around for a couple of years. And what they're really looking to do is expand the product in the U.S. And they needed help thinking about like, what does the U.S. payments infrastructure look like? What are the regulatory issues we'll need to think about? Who are potential partners? How do we really set those up to scale? So if we're going to take this European pro- uh, product and bring it to the U.S., and compete with Bill.com, it's going to have to be able to scale really, uh, to, to meet that competition, that, that challenge. So how do we kind of build those relationships? And so we brought them in, made a relatively small initial investment in the company, worked on connecting them with potential partners, payment networks, potential banks, helped them to raise capital, stand up raising a Series A from QED, kind of towards the end of that first program we did with them. The company has just been off to the races, done a really incredible job of growing and scaling. And I think for them, just helpful in kind of telling them where to go next. I, I think there's a lot of people try to do or you know, just saving time. I kind of compare that if you were looking for a job or like a summer internship or something where you don't have a huge network and you go into like career counselor or you talk to somebody and they're like, oh, well, don't bother there. You're going to send a thousand emails. You'll never get a response. This would be a good fit. This would be a good fit. This wouldn't be a good fit. And I'll just set up a bunch of interviews for you. And like tomorrow, come here and like, we'll just have a bunch of half an hour long interviews and we'll just figure out by the end of the day. 
you'd be like, awesome. That just saved me months and months and months of time. And I think for fintech company, especially kind of the stage where they have something, you can really go into this process where you could spend months like trying to find bank partners. I mean, there's 12,000 banks in this country. You can spend a lot of time looking for a bank partner. Even getting a list of potential bank partners is super helpful. Then being told, okay, say this to this person. Don't say that to that person. Don't bother there. That kind of takes it to the next level. And I think that's how we try to think about our impact. Another great company to talk about would be a company called Point, which was a debit card alternative kind of neobank for slightly more affluent younger consumers. So I think people who are probably graduating from college right now, early to mid-20s, might be you know affluent uh, in the future, but at the, this point you know they might have, they have a good first job, but they're still trying to figure out their financial lives. You know this is again really talented team, very technology driven. Actually graduated from Y Combinator, and you know, I think last this is middle of 2019. There was you know I think a lot of skepticism of the challenger banks out there. We don't share that skepticism. And so really like this team, like the approach, knew their early traction numbers they had were phenomenal. And so again, made a relatively small initial investment there. Worked really close to just kind of go through the process of helping them kind of scale the underlying payments architecture that they're building on. And then at the same time, we're also building our position in the company. And then at the end, kind of towards the end of the program, they raised a very significant Series A from the top tier venture fund, which they haven't, haven't announced yet. Probably will have announced by the time this airs, I think. But I think there, again, very similar theme to Roger. I think the founders, we were helpful sounding board for ideas and kind of give conclusive. I'm thinking about doing this thing. What do you think? Don't do that. You know, like that will be slower. We're able to then help provide them capital, I think, in a market which was at the time very, very challenging for them. You know, I think once the, the metrics kind of caught up to what we saw them, as I think the broader market started to realize the opportunity there. Got it. And what's your relationship with the companies after the nine months? Uh, we stayed very close to them. During that kind of that period, we're usually checking in at a minimum every two weeks. And usually it's, it's far more frequently than that. It could be daily in many cases. If the companies are executing, they're growing. And you know, when they're growing and you venture back company, you end up having kind of going through this natural progression of you raise a series A and you know that kind of formalizes the board. You'll get somebody in there who will you know, take, a, take even more of a hands-on kind of governance role. And at that point, you know, we tend to kind of step back to maybe instead of being like every two weeks, we're checking in monthly, maybe quarterly if they're really doing well, and you can just start looking at the metrics. But I think we still try to continue to be kind of that first call for founders, especially if they're, they're working on something. You know, we have a number of companies in the portfolio are probably at a later stage now. Dave.com, Digit. Uh, we have another point, that's home equity. You can sell a portion of home equity. And we still talk to those founders all the time. And I think, you know, we can kind of play a role that's a little bit less, you know, we're still investors, but a little bit, a little bit less with our investor hat on at those later stage and more of kind of like, you know, an ally of management of like, okay, well, here's a way of solving this particular issue, or here's, here's how, you know, your investor might be thinking about it. Here's what maybe ways you could kind of troubleshoot. So we tend to, I think, move to more of almost like a peer relationship to the founders as, as they evolve their businesses. And looking forward, are there any particular areas, verticals within fintech that you are most excited about, that you are paying special attention? To be honest, I think the areas we've been focused on are becoming even more attractive. This is a horrible crisis that we're facing as a country. And I think one of the things, you know, it's obviously a horrible public health crisis, but it's also creating tremendous damage economically. 
it's exposing what we think are some huge opportunities, improving those parts of financial services ecosystem that serve a lot of people. If you're small businesses, for example, the PPP loan program, you can see that those kind of, especially that first wave where most of those loans were going to, you know, well-connected large businesses, not your corner coffee shop, I think is, is due in large part to the fact that those small businesses are very poorly served by banks. Many of them don't have good banking relationships. And so I think what we're going to see, especially with this kind of second wave, and, and you've heard some of this out of Square and some of the other, you know, Pal or Gusto has been, been signing up a lot of businesses, is a lot of those kind of fintech are actually more efficient at pulling that capital than the bigger banks are. On the consumer side, we already see this. I mean, unfortunately, what we're doing is we're going to take a lot of people who might have been in the middle class and knock them down a rung, and really it's kind of kick the legs out from them financially. Their need to figure out more tools to help them save, to better manage their money, to access more affordable credit, to make better financial decisions is, is only going to increase. And so I think for where we try to sit in the market, those are still two areas that we're very focused on, you know, small business, consumer. The other thing is that's happened here is that Many of the incumbent financial institutions are very poorly prepared to work and to deal with an environment that's mostly remote, i.e. mostly digital. And so you're seeing a significant contraction in how long it takes to partner with these institutions. You're trying to sell into banks right now. We have a company that was um, kind of on a roadmap was to kind of sell, sell the product to banks and financial institutions. And so we were working with them to kind of try to accelerate that. Well, with this crisis, they, they're now live with a bank and they got live working with them in about less than a week, which normally would have taken a year. So you're seeing a real shift, I think, in how the market's perceiving, how the incumbents are perceiving the fintech partners. It's less now about intelligence and long-term thinking. It's much more like actually need some way to process a loan remotely that like otherwise we will not make any loans. We actually need some way to communicate with our customers on their phone. And the other huge thing that's happening is we're getting similar to, to the growth of teleconference software in this crisis is one of the big barriers that fintech has as an industry is there's a lot of people, let's say like the vast majority of people do not feel comfortable putting their banking credentials on the internet. And if you're choosing now between walking into a bank branch, which A, is probably closed, and if not closed, it seems completely unnecessary risk, frankly, or using the app, you're going to use the app. And once someone gets used to using that app, once they do things like use remote deposit capture, once they put their credentials online the first time, the second, third, fourth, it's a piece of cake. They've already done it. And so what you're going to see is a massive growth in the number of users broadly in the industry here over the next year or so. Very interesting. I've been talking to a few professionals in the industry, not just in the US, but uh, around the world. And in many countries where the regulator was actually very restrictive, they've now switched and are starting to aggressively partner with fintechs because they're the only ones who can deliver the services that are needed. Are you seeing the regulator in the US also react? Totally, like 100%. I mean, I don't want to react because you, know, you don't want to see regulars react. Um, yeah, I mean, the fact that the Treasury Department let non-banks distribute U.S. government-backed dollars to small businesses, that's an expansion of banking. Like, we can call it whatever you want, but that is an expansion of banking licensure. You know, and you look at, like, how banking has evolved in this country, crises tend to open the floodgates for something that it might take years for you to realize how much got lit through those floodgates. We have national banking charters in this country because of the Civil War. Like the OCC was created by Lincoln 
to make sure there was a way of kind of getting you know cash and capital around the country during a time of crisis. And now those banks dominate our economy. You know, you have the kind of the death and the paper check was started after 9-11 when planes couldn't fly and there needed to be some way of digitally reproducing these checks. I think there's going to be broad ramifications for decades to come for what we're seeing here because you have a situation where now fintech companies are in many cases not only playing on the same field as the incumbents, but they're doing a better job. And there's not a lot of love for regulated banks in this country generally. But I wouldn't be betting against the fintech companies, you know, kind of maintaining a bit of a moral and political advantage over the next several years. That's fascinating. So we have a lot of listeners who are practitioners, who are investors, but also we have a lot of founders. I was hoping if you could share some advice, share some thoughts in light of what's going on, in light of this uh, unprecedented crisis that we're living in. For founders, save cash. We have a pretty, I think, dark view on how this crisis can affect funding markets for the next couple of years. We're seeing very little activity right now. The funding announcements you're reading about are, are deals that were baked or deep in process pre-COVID. We've talked to a lot of much larger investors. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that people are, you know, quote unquote, open for business. I actually think it's going to be a very challenging time to be a founder because people forget, like, there, most people who work in venture capital, like, work in venture capital. They have a job and they have a boss and they have to be doing stuff. And to you know, say, hey, I'm not doing any deals for the next six months is, you know, it's kind of like, it's like you saying I'm not going to do a podcast for the next six months. So, so someone else will be like, well, I'll do a podcast. And like, you're going to be out of the podcast job. And so there, there's a dynamic where it's now actually easier for a lot of founders to get the attention of investors. And it's easier to go through a process, but it's a lot, there's not, there might not be anything at the end of that process. And so we've actually been advising our founders for the most part to just stop fundraising. You know, if you have internal investors who are willing to, to give you cash, you should take that. I think founders, you know, need to adjust their expectations for valuation and for where they think the bar of business is. You know, we, we've kind of been kind of saying in kind of shorthand, you know, we have kind of pre-COVID businesses and post-COVID businesses, and, and you have pre-COVID founders and post-COVID founders. Well, there's so far no post-COVID businesses. All the businesses that exist now are businesses that were pretty much started before this happened. Maybe they're getting started now. You know, maybe by the time this podcast airs, we have our first one or two of them. But generally, those take a couple of years. It is hard to start a business. It is hard to come up with a creative new idea. It's not that, like, flip a switch, I know what to, what to do. So I think we're still months away from seeing kind of post-COVID businesses. So now we have a bunch of pre-COVID businesses, and they, they're kind of defined by if they have post-COVID founders or pre-COVID founders. And, you know, you don't want to be a pre-COVID founder in a post-COVID world. And I think you see some of that still, where people have these expectations for valuation, for process, for speed, that is just not in line with where the market is. And so I think what we've been telling our founders is to be very realistic about it, to try to hold cash as much as they can, to try to extend runway, to assume that if they do raise, it's, it's probably not, it might be quite dilutive to them, you know, to really focus on the product. And what's been interesting here is almost all of our founders have turned out to be really good post-COVID founders. And it's, it, it sucks. I mean, you're working remotely. It's, very, it's, a, it's a horrible time to try to be managing people. You know, you've got everyone's working in their houses. Everyone's under a tremendous amount of stress. And no one really knows how to operate like this for long periods of time. And so that's a really hard environment to be managing in. And so, you know, just kind of keeping the lights on and keeping customers happy and showing up is a huge accomplishment. 
you know, I think we've been really pleased that so many of our founders have been able to kind of make that pivot. And it's a really hard environment to operate in. We all hand one or two that they haven't switched. And it is, that's much scarier. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of the VCs are open for business, but for their existing portfolio companies. I think that's fair. I mean, you're just going to do that, you know, logically. I mean, you know, people tend to think, you know, there's just like, there's some crazy risk appetite out there in the world. Like, there's nobody that's going to press send on $15 million flying out of their bank account to somebody else they've never met before. Like, there's a real high barrier to doing that. There's something about meeting somebody, going to their office to make sure it's a real office, the people they say are employed are actually employed there. Like, you can technically do all that remotely, but like, it's hard. And at some point, like, you're talking about a decent amount of money to everybody. And so it's, you're just gonna, you're gonna have a really tough time getting new deals done until people figure out how to operate in that environment. In the meantime, you know, you have your own portfolio that you know, you know who's doing well. You have an information advantage vis the other investors. And so we are seeing that. We're seeing a lot of investors put take the opportunity to put new money into existing companies, build ownership positions, help them kind of bridge to what, you know, to throughout the rest of the year. I think everyone kind of expects the rest of the year to be very challenging. You know, another thing about this year, about 2020, that people have kind of forgotten about is there's also an election that's gonna happen in like third and fourth quarters, which based on the last election, kind of crazy town generally. So, you know, you're not, it's not an environment people are super stoked to give you. Add some more uncertainty right there. So, you know. Oh, that, that's fascinating, Ryan. And thank you so much for joining us and, you know, sharing your experiences. We, we always like to close up with uh, one last question, which is more about your, your life outside of work. Uh, perhaps you could share what are some of your favorite hobbies? I mean, be before this whole thing happened, I like I was uh, like to go bike riding, like exercise. I have two small children, so I'd say my hobby now is is uh, is homeschooling them. It's pretty <laughs> intense, you know. I luckily like you know to do to do that too, and you know she's been really supportive, and I think you know, unfortunately most of the most of that falls on on her. But like, I think that's one of the things about operating right now. I mean, it is like especially if you have, you know, wood pendulum from those personal situation, they're just juggling a bunch of other stuff. Like I'm going to get off this podcast and like literally run upstairs, you know, do like a handoff, like a, like a wrestling handoff with my wife and she'll come down here and like work for the next, like, I think she's a caller, like, you know, 10. And, uh, and you're just doing that all day long. So like, there's not, not a lot of hobbies outside, I guess sleeping probably <laughs> that counts that counts, <laughs> that counts. <laughs> so it sounds like you have two full-time jobs right now it's, it's 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 busy but you know there's i mean it's i don't think compared to a lot of what people are going through right now it's yeah you know you, you gotta kind of keep some perspective yeah absolutely well ryan thanks again and you know you're always welcome on campus particularly once we reopen which is hopefully soon and hope to have you around you know anytime yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Our pleasure. Thank you. Take care. See you around.